house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Renowned for his genius. Do you have the reputation of mocking the men of cloth in your work? Do I? Are you aware of how many powerful enemies you have? Oh, yeah. Fortunately, I also have a few very powerful friends. A woman adored for her beauty. Why doesn't that painting have a face? Because he's a ghost. No, he is not. How do you know? But behind the art... Do you not see what demonic filth this guy is selling? Do you painters not become very intimate with your models? Beyond the canvas. My daughter Ines has been summoned by the Holy Office. Ines, that's preposterous. Is a world where the powerful are declared righteous. We have to return to the God-fearing ways of the past. And the innocent are declared guilty. What do you want me to confess? The truth. My daughter was tortured. Tell me what the truth is! Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast calling Hey Nani Nani the song of the summer. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we were here. We are. Well, are we here? Are we there? Either way, we're going to perform an autopsy. I'm your host, Chris Vile. I'm here as always with my favorite heretic, Joe Reed. Chris, I feel like we're talking about a movie that in many ways doesn't exist. And yet. Oh, no. No, 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 no. No. No, no. It oh, I thought you were good. disagreeing with me. I was just like, wait a second, are you going to make the case for the Goya's fact Ghost that I existing? was able to watch this on Amazon Prime? Yeah, does not um, at all negate the fact that the movie um, doesn't exist. And yet, I feel like if more people knew it existed, we would talk about it a lot. Especially for everything true. that Natalie Portman does in the second half of this the movie. The things that she does, the things that she wears, the things <sighs> that are um, strapped onto her body by the hair and makeup department of this film. <laughs> I So, uh, for our listeners, we tend to keep a somewhat, not like hard and fast, but like a general rule that we don't want to talk about the movies before we get on the podcast, we don't want to, you know, burn through our material early. We want to keep the conversation fresh. So there's generally very minimal interaction between us as we're watching the movies beyond the stray, like, incredulous text. And it is very difficult sometimes. The level of all caps I sent Chris last night when I'm watching this movie when I got to Natalie Portman playing her second of two roles in this movie, and I just said, what did I say? I was just like, not the teeth on Natalie. It's just, she gets... All of the teeth on Natalie. It, in oh. the primary role that she plays, after she is out of the insane asylum, or out of the, like, what the... Inquisition uh, prison. Yeah, the Inquisition gulag, whatever it is. Right. Um she gets out of there and like everything on her body is a, like a shade of gray. 
Fifty yes. Shades of Grey is about all of the different types of grey that are on Natalie Portman's body in this movie. Um, yeah. And yet her teeth at that point of the movie is like you took the Bohemian Rhapsody teeth, like left them in a like a mossy bog for a few weeks and then ran them through a garbage disposal. But those weren't the teeth that I was talking about when I texted you, though. What I was talking about was when she shows up again as her own daughter prostitute character. And that's when she's got these like like weird that's those to me are like the rami malik weird british teeth yeah prosthetic thing going on i was just like i and i couldn't quite understand whether it was just like we have to find a way to differentiate the characters and it's just like one is like caked in 15 years of mud from the inquisition prison and is like limping around and has a swollen jaw from abuse and all of her and the other one shipped off Right. And the other one is like a fancy like flamenco prostitute. And I was just like, there's no way that we're going to ever confuse these two. I don't understand why we had to give prostitute Natalie these like gangly like British They had teeth. to give her some feature that is like Javier Bardem. So I wonder if they took like a mold of Javier oh, Bardem's no, teeth, no. made false teeth and said... M- bottom line is if actress Twitter ever found out about this movie... It would be all over for you hoes. Like, genuinely, we'd just never stop talking about it. It's so wild. It's, it, 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 okay, so, I mean, like, we're, we're jumping ahead as we are prone to do, but, like, Natalie Portman plays two, uh, very teethy roles in this movie, one of which yes. is her own daughter. At, that is 15 years old and is a prostitute. You said she looks right. like a flamenco dancer. The movie is somewhat problematic in that regard. That's like, oh, sure, sure. She is perfectly, uh, this movie just believed that she could play someone named Lucia um, and Inez. Yeah. I, Inez. Alicia, Alicia, I think. Oh, that's yes, right, because every time they said Alicia, I was like, Vikander. <laughs> Vikander. <laughs> um, uh, what a time. Well, her performance is so bananas, like, on every level. Because when she's playing Inez, before she gets, like, sent into the Inquisition, it's like, okay, so that woman, we're going to say is supposed to be, what, early 20s? Maybe, sure. like, she's, like, of age, but, like, young. But, like, and then the other role, the daughter role, is, as you said, 15. Um, which is far too young for Natalie to be playing. And yet that's the role. The prostitute role is the one she plays as this sort of like wizened and world weary, like woman. She's, you know, been living on her own this whole time. And meanwhile, Inez, the, you know, supposedly, you know, of age woman, she plays with this like total, like that Natalie baby voice that she sometimes goes into where like, she really like, like that lisp in her voice is still very prominent. And, you know, she doesn't know how to answer their questions. Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, it's very baby voice. But, like, like, in the I second half of the movie, the it's here. that plus bridge troll. <laughs> yes! Yeah. And I mean, because again... she's doing, and it's, again, a lot of jaw acting. Um, there's a lot of jaw acting. We've had a very jaw acting kind of last several weeks here on the podcast between this and The Dangerous Methods. So, like... I like oh. that jaw acting, though. I don't like this jaw acting. I don't. Th- this okay, movie... okay. I don't think it's Natalie's fault, but I don't think 
I like that jaw acting. It's no, I don't think I like anything Natalie does in this movie. And again, I am a genuine flamenco prostitute for Natalie Portman in general. Like I am here for all of it, but like this is absolutely my least favorite performance I've ever seen of her. This and is you've the movie seen the prequels, girl. yes and i've seen the prequels the prequels i also like it's hard to hold that against her and i kind of like just sort of like set those aside in my mind sure so but um it's a crucial era for natalie that goes between oh no this was after v for vendetta wasn't it yeah but it's also after her oscar nomination too where it's like she still has the oscar nomination gives an amazing performance but like there's this whole thing that maybe 50% of the population still uh, thinks she's a bad actress. Oh, absolutely. Except for so, like, well, people like us who love her. I want to sort of maybe put a pin in this and talk about this after the plot description. But yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a wilderness that she sort of wanders in that to me goes from V for Vendetta... Uh, which is sort of her, like, I'm done with the prequels movie. I always feel like that's very, like, I'm going to shave my head. I'm going to, you know, go all out. I'm going to do the most non-George Lucasy thing I can do. And I'm going to do V for Vendetta. And then there's a weird wilderness that she kind of wanders in that she doesn't come out of until Black Swan in 2010. And there's a lot of interesting little detours in that wilderness that i want to talk about for sure but i don't want to like send us too far down a path before we get to the plot description and some of these that we're talking about are movies that we could eventually do on this podcast oh yeah and one I mean, of them we is have one done we one have done yeah, yeah 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 um and one of them is a, a regular punchline title on our uh our weekly categories games that we'll also bring up yes. um for sure but anyway um nat i think there's a ton to talk about with Natalie. I think there's going to be a ton to talk about with Milos Forman as well, because I think that's the reason why this movie is on this list. Yes. Is Milos Forman is a two-time Best Director and Best Picture winner. Like that, you, those are pretty rare to come by. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's that's a very exclusive field at that point. So like, you and you know he basically stopped making movies after this one and it's tough to blame him for that after how this turned out but it's one of those things where it's just like well everything he was going to make was going to have oscar buzz uh, forever right. after, after amadeus like that was just like that was the case and he's made some really interesting movies since then like it's his run after amadeus to the end of his career is a really interesting little selection of movies and we'll definitely talk about that as well mm-hmm as our future t-shirt says, we'll get into it. <laughs> we'll get into it. Um, yeah, Goya's Ghosts. It was originally on our last Listener's Choice episode. Yeah. Lost. We were, pu- we were both full- very, very non-secretly pulling for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were in our text thread saying, you know, the real ones are picking Goya's Ghosts. Um, <laughs> you are all real ones. We love you all. Um, but Goya's Ghosts, I think it probably lost that poll... Because people don't either remember it or know what it is. Right. So maybe oh, oh, we should tell It is them. a movie that exists only in the memories of people who are really into tracking the Oscar race year long. Oh, yeah. Long, like people who are making... looking into early predictions and such. Right. Because this was such a long, drawn-out process before this movie would even 
open in the States. It opened like everywhere else but the U.S. before it finally opened here to the point where it's like in the fall of 06, it's one of those titles that we expected to be seeing show up at fall festivals. It goes to none of them. Yep. And that was a warning sign. And then it (laughs) opens internationally and you see like reviews breaking in still doesn't even go to Sundance of that year. And then Samuel Goldwyn buys it and opens it very quietly in the summer of 07. Yeah, I also, I'm looking at the poster now. Not only is it touted as the writer-director of Amadeus, but the producer of The English Patient, because it was a Saul Zantz production. So, Uh. like, they were really, really angling the prestige on this thing. And, God, it's just the most serif font in this poster. Like, they really are just, like really trying to amp up um the the seriousness and the prestige of it all and yet it's such a goofy movie and in some ways not in a bad way like uh, we'll talk about that too is just like i think this is a really insane movie but in there are like certain milos forman touches that i'm just like oh i kind of get what the good version of this movie might have been i don't know if you felt good that good version way. of this movie would probably be a mini series or would be like 3 yeah. hours long because as it is it's like four different competing movies right i just mean more so in terms of like tone like there are movie oh, sure. there are moments of like really odd almost humor in this that mm-hmm. like I just like oh like you you can like that you really sort of pinpoint the Milos Forman in that and I'm just like oh if a couple other things maybe went better I don't know I have I have fundamental issues with <laughs> what this movie is that we can get into also but uh, yeah don't want to get too ahead of ourselves <laughs> okay well then uh, let's just set the table for the sixty second plot description once again ladies and gentlemen we are here to talk about Goya's ghosts. Written and directed by Milos Forman, co-written by Jean-Claude Carrière, honorary Oscar winner. Um, starring Javier Bardem, Natalie Portman, Stellan Skarsgård, um, the inexplicable Randy Quaid, uh, Jose Luis So Inez, inexplicable! Oh Michael my god. Lonsdale. As I mentioned, its first premiere was when it opened in Spain of November of 2006. Didn't open stateside until the next July of 2007. Yeah. That's true. Joseph. Yes. Would you uh, like to um, accept your position of the unenviable task of giving a 60-second plot description for Goya's Ghosts? Yes, in fairness, um, this is all going to be wildly, probably stupid-sounding about the Inquisition, but yes. Yes. We are, we are not um, uh, European historians. We sure aren't. We are Oscar historians, damn it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. If you are ready, I will start the timer. And yeah, I'm ready. All right. 60-second plot description from Joseph Reed on Goya's Ghost starts now. It's the late 18th century, and somehow the Inquisition is still a thing. And uh, Francisco Goya, played by Stalin Skarsgård, is a painter of some renown. He paints the queen atop a horse. He paints a pretty young woman named Inez, played by Natalie Portman. He paints an inquisitor priest named Lorenzo, played by Javier Bardem. One day, the Inquisition sees Inez refusing to eat pork at a tavern, and they assume she's Jewish, because that's how they are. And they haul her in for questioning and torture her and imprison her. And her family invites Goya and Lorenzo 
Lorenzo over for dinner, and the father ends up torturing Lorenzo and forces him to sign a document claiming he's a monkey to seconds. prove that torture doesn't work, and the church is very embarrassed by this, and they banish Lorenzo, and then 15 years later, Napoleon invades, and the Inquisition is ended, and the priests are imprisoned, and the prisoners are freed, including Inez, who had a baby by rapey Lorenzo and is now looking for it. Lorenzo, meanwhile, returns to Madrid, and this time as a Voltaire-spouting French sympathizer, and Goya confronts him with Inez, and they find the daughter, who's a toothy prostitute, who is also played by Natalie Portman, and the English invade, and the daughter hooks up with an English soldier, and Inez finds her grandbaby on the floor of a tavern, and, and then she adopts her, and Lorenzo gets publicly executed by the revived Inquisition, and Goya just watches yeah, it in his death. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. The last half hour of this movie is the part of the movie that is insane. It's fully insane. Here's it's, my. It's fully insane because you have Inez, who's a teenage prostitute who has a baby, or not Inez. That's that's uh, Alicia. Uh, Alicia. The and Inez is like looking for her baby, who she doesn't realize is already well, like a. a Basically, for those times, a grown woman, I guess. But like, right? She's been she she's been in isolation all this time. Long. Right? She's lost all sense of time. Yeah, and she doesn't know how long she was in there for. She thinks her baby is still a baby, and then when she sees Alicia's baby, who is like abandoned in a just bar raid, chilling behind then, beneath the table. Yeah, and she just sees a baby and says, "It's my baby." Turns out, it's her grandbaby. Yes, it's wild. And like and those like, are like she goes to the execution of Javier Bardem who raped her while she was in the Inquisition. Right. And she thinks they're in love and like she shows up to his execution like brandishing this baby in the sky like look I found our baby. It's it's the most like you who and she's just so <laughs> weird. I mean obviously the circumstances are horrific but like horrific horrific. Yeah. Okay. Here's my biggest problem with the movie, okay. and maybe you can tell me I'm up a creek, but, like, this movie is a, is not about Goya to a degree that I feel like is useless. Like, I get it the idea Goya's ghost. that, like, it's called Goya's Ghost, but Goya isn't the most important character. He's Goya more of an observer. Goya is absolutely a facilitator of, like, I don't even know what, but, like... But he's so unimportant... Yeah, that it like that it I any kind of statement that maybe Foreman was trying to make about um like famous historical figures not being cent- the central figure of their own lives or something like that is completely lost because it's just like there's what is what is Goya supposed to be in this movie? Is he like a symbol of um? like watching your country sort of like go from one repressive regime to another to another like i don't think that's really the case is he a symbol of like art's inability to affect real change because he just sort of like stands there and observes as like all of the stuff happens and like which is like the thing that is said in the like first scene of the movie where the uh spanish inquisition and the cardinals whatever the their position is they're almost labeling him a heretic but Javier Bardem is like no he is just he is just depicting the evil of our country as it is and it's like okay well you've made that point we have 2 hours left in yes. this movie right right 2 hours left and like a whole lot of goya just sort of like standing on the sidelines and sometimes going increasingly deaf and he literally screams the words i'm deaf at natalie portman he does. it's true as her jaw tries to like i don't know 
consume her shoulder. But so I do feel like there are certain biographical details about Foreman's, Mulish Foreman's life that are pertinent to this and that I do think emerge in at least some semi-interesting ways where it's just like he's from Czechoslovakia, from like Iron Curtain, Czechoslovakia. He, uh, his mother died in Auschwitz. The man who he thought was his father also was killed by the Nazis. Um, he later found out that somebody else was his father, uh, in Czechoslovakia. He and I believe his brother both leave Czechoslovakia in 1968 following the invasion of Czechoslovakia by the other Warsaw Pact countries after the Prague Spring. So like, and he's sort of representative of this kind of Czech artistic vanguard of the moment mm-hmm. where there was this sort of just like this artistic revival that, you know, was sort of part and parcel of the Prague Spring. Then he, you know, emerges from Czechoslovakia. He makes, uh, most notably, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, wins the Best Picture Oscar, also with Best Director, Actor, Actress, and Screenplay. One of, it's still only three movies that have ever done that, right? Yes. That, it happened one night. Nothing since Silence of the Lambs has done it. Right, exactly. Um, Then makes, nine years later, Amadeus, which also wins Best Picture and Best Director, in addition to Best Actor for F. Murray Abraham, and has a really fascinating career from there. But I think just the, the, the facts of his growing up in, you know amid Nazi occupation in World War II, and then uh, Cold War Russian uh, occupation and influence in uh, post-World War II, it it very much informs the POV of this movie, which is, mm-hmm. we watch, initially, it's the Inquisition that is the oppressive regime that is, you know, uh, menacing certain members of Spanish society. And then it's Napoleon who comes in and runs roughshod and, like, banishes the Inquisition, but it's, like, you know, out with the old oppressive regime, in with the new one. He installs his brother as the king of France, who is, like, a real duncey dum-dum, who, like, speaks in fully American-inflected English, which I think is really interesting, and doesn't understand a Hieronymus Bosch painting and finds it, like, disgusting. And then, by the end of the movie, the the French are overtaken by the British, who, like, are just as brutal as the French were. And all of that, to me, is A, pretty effective, and B, like, absolutely a, you know, a strong POV from Foreman about how just, like, one man's um, sort of liberating revolution is another man's crushing oppression and i think Mm -hmm. it comes from you know a pov of somebody who saw the nazis get routed by the russians who then you know put their thumb down on czechoslovakia just as much so that all to me it's a whole like entry into this material that's far more interesting than the movie ever is or like you describing it that way feels developed in a way that that is not fully developed in the movie well right and i think that's because we're following these characters who are to one degree or another fairly absurd but not like my my question to this movie is always like how absurd are we supposed to be finding this really how much of this is intentional or accidental Mm mm-hmm especially the Portman character. Like, that's where the the quote from, that she relayed at that one Hollywood Reporter roundtable that you love so much yes. really, really comes into play. <laughs> My beloved. 
Explain that moment. Like, cause you've talked, you talked, you've talked about it on the podcast before, but like, this is the movie that it's referring to. So like, okay. So this is the black swan year of the best actress round table. It's probably my favorite one in hindsight. Now it's such a rudimentary setup of that round table too, really because they're is. at a restaurant. It looks like shit. The there's audio like a, isn't great. <laughs> there's like a power cord hanging behind uh, <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. It's like, it's the prototype of what the Best Actress Roundtable has, like, become, where it is incredibly produced now, and, like, yeah. they have publicists going in there and, like, telling them how to, like, angle themselves. Amy Adams is there and actually speaks in this one. Yeah, it's very um, it's very catch-as-catch-can in a very interesting and fun way, and the lineup of women is stellar. We'll absolutely post it in the Tumblr, but go back and watch it because it's very different than what you're used to seeing now. But it also has several of my favorite moments, including Hilary Swank going on and on and on about the movie uh, People Like Us yes. and how she didn't get the part or whatever. And at that time, it was announced that Amy Adams, who she is sitting right next to... Turned it down, right? Turn, they were they had either like cast her or like it was preliminarily announced that it was her and at that point she had in fact said no I'm not going to do the movie and it eventually went to Elizabeth Banks but Hilary Swank is going on like oh, the, the greatest role the I've ever read it's the greatest role I've ever read it's from these Transformer guys I don't like sci-fi but it's not sci-fi blah 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 and uh, my memory was that it was Helena Bonham Carter that was the shit stirrer but no in fact, it is uh, Annette, Benning Annette Benning who jumps in and says, oh, well, you are playing that part, aren't you, Amy? Yes. And then uh, Pandemonium pursues. Amy, Amy Adams is, like, backtracking, like, uh, uh. Trying I, to be uh, polite, and, trying to, like, spare Hillary's feelings. Yeah, it's Well, amazing. and ultimately she says she doesn't want to do it because at that point her daughter was really young and she wanted to take a step back from work to be, like, there with her daughter. But you could also tell that Amy was, like, that script, like, that one that... That I didn't right. really want to do anyway. It's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's, wait, let's no. run down the lineup though, because it's, it's Helena Bottom Carter representing the King speech. Natalie Portman. Yes. Annette Benning. Yes. Nicole Kidman. Yes. Hillary Swank. Yes. For I'm guessing Amelia. No conviction. Oh, it's the conviction. It's year. the conviction. Yeah, we year. need to do conviction. We, we should do conviction. Yeah. At some point. Um, and then Amy Adams. So it's like this indicative of this like incredibly strong actress year at the Oscars where like Kidman, Benning, Portman are all nominated uh, that year, along with Jennifer Lawrence and Michelle Williams. Helena and Amy are both nominated in supporting. And then like, and Hilary Swank as the unnominated <laughs> conviction. It's, it's I try not to be a jerk and stuff, but like, I know you watch this best actress roundtable and you get why people don't really like Hillary Swank. She's a little annoying. Yes, she is. But anyway, so um, the uh, the pertinent moment for us. I try not to be a jerk. But the pertinent moment that comes up, the one that like has fully I've remembered Goya's ghosts as an entity because of this. Oh, that's interesting. And not because of the movie. Yeah. It is they're talking about I think actors note or director's notes or something. And uh 
Natalie Portman chimes in and says, "I did a movie with Milos Forman." Oh wait, wait, no, before ago. that, before because I I, I want to make sure that we give Annette's moment her due because Annette goes on a really funny sort of runner about working with Milos Forman on Valmont and about oh, yes. how he like never spared the actor's feelings and was like kind of mean about it and would like parrot their bad line readings back to them. <laughs> In this, like, very sort of, like, <laughs> harsh way. And then that telling the story is from, like, her, like, long years later perspective is trying to just be like, but, you know, he was right. And, and you know, all this sort of stuff. But just, like, and just a very kind of funny impersonation of Milos's voice. And it's just, like, and then so during this whole thing, you, Natalie is next to Annette and she's just sort of, like, watching with, like, rapt attention. And you can tell she's got a story for it. And then when Annette's done, she chimes in. Um. I got to work with Milos a few years ago, and he gave me one of the best directions. You're acting like this is a bad movie, but this is not a bad movie. This is a good movie. You are acting like you are in a bad movie, and this is not a bad movie. It's a good movie. Uh, Unfortunately, Milos was wrong about that note because, uh, regardless, it is a bad movie. But I thought of that quote throughout her performance because I'm just like, she is acting like she's in a bad movie. It's not a good movie, but but like. Hey, did she respond to the note? And like, is the performance such as it is on screen the performance Milos wanted that it was? I don't know. I don't know. Acting like she's in a good movie—that's crazy. Yeah, like that. Yes, is this was this a corrective from whatever she was doing that Milos did think was acting like in a bad movie? And like, I wonder what that means. Whether she was being too self serious, whether it was, um, it's so hard to tell, and it's hard to tell in what role he was critiquing her performance in is the other thing, and that's what I like died in now. what if the only what if I meet Natalie Portman and the only question I ask her is about that moment from Goya's Ghosts and just like were you was it about you playing Alicia or was it about you playing Inez and she's just sort of like looks at me and is like sir this is an Arby's and uh, fully does not remember <laughs> making Goya's Ghosts so for my entire uh, lifetime of knowing about this movie until five minutes into watching this movie, I assumed that Javier Bardem played Goya in this film. Because... (laughs) That I knew. That I knew was not the thing. I knew that he was a priest because, like, from the photos that I'd seen of the movie, I was like, oh, uh, Javier Bardem in a bunch of, like, robes and capes. I see. That seems like... All I knew of him was the poster, and the poster is just sort of like him and and Natalie sort of their painted faces and Stellan Skarsgård kind of... Right, because the poster even, like, shoves... Stellan Skarsgård's Goya. Right, and he's sort of lurking in the background with this, like, very, like, uh, stereotypical uh, uh, painter's palette, whatever you call that. And, uh, and like, he's he's the third lead of the movie, but he's a distant a third. A very lead, distant like. third. A very distant third. This is sort of goes into my problems with the movie again. It was just, like, making Goya uh, an observer is, like, a cute idea, but you gotta do something with it, and I don't think the movie ever really does anything with it. Right, it's like naming Gone Girl after the Carrie Coon character. <laughs> gone Go. <laughs> yeah, Gone Go. Go, go girl. girl. Go, oh my god, go what hurt. if Gone Girl was called Go Girl? That would be... <laughs> I mean, that's how we feel when we watch it. It's true. Go off Go this. Girl. Go... <laughs> go off, Amazing Amy. <laughs> she did that. I'm like... Yeah. Amazing Amy truly is like actress Twitter personified, where it's just like she did that. She did that for us. She didn't have to go that hard. Amy, Amy, Amazing Amy 
is the personification of she didn't have to go that hard. But she did. But for she us. did for us. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, actress Twitter is very, um, perhaps, uh, absolutely okay with murder. Oh yeah, there's no perhaps about it. Like yeah. one million percent true. Yes, more murder the better, as far as we're concerned. Yes. Okay, so Milos Forman. I want to talk about the Milos Forman after Amadeus sort of run because mm-hmm. Annette Benning when uh, talk, touched on it briefly, she did a film in 1989 for him called Velmont, which was like. You know how there are sometimes like just like two movies on the same subject in production at the same time, and it's just like an odd phenomenon where it's... we got this a ton in the aughts, and like it doesn't really seem to happen anymore because the industry has like changed and everything's so like prepared far out. But yes, absolutely, this like sometimes it's volcano and Dante's Peak, where like some people like one and some people like the other, and they're generally on the same uh, plane. Or although... Armageddon, Deep Impact, right? Um. But in this case, infamous Capote, dangerous liaisons. Well, that's the thing. Dangerous liaisons is the Capote in this situation, where it gets nominated mm-hmm. for all the Oscars. It's the one everybody remembers. It's you know the big dog, and then Valmont is the um, wait. What's the other Capote movie called? Infamous. Infamous. Valmont is absolutely the infamous, where it's just like re- people really don't remember it much, which is kind of funny because. Milos Forman is a far more uh, respected director than Stephen Frears is. I think Stephen Frears mm-hmm. definitely has his moments, but he also makes a lot of crap. So, um, But Valmon at least gets like a costume design nomination, but that's like, that's the lowest, uh, that's the lowest goal of on course. the totem pole for Dangerous Liaisons. Yes. Dangerous Liaisons kind of like runs the gamut. Doesn't, does it get the director nomination? I, th- I don't think it did. Mm-hmm. Wait, so it would be 88. So you look That's it up while I try I and guess. It's only three for three. I will look it up. So Levinson for Rain Man definitely also gets director because he wins. Um, I don't think Mike Nichols is nominated for Working Girl. Um, uh, no, I th- Ooh, actually, I think you, that you are right. No, Dangerous Liaisons does not get the director nomination. I'm trying to think of like what would have because i don't think accidental tourist gets a director nomination either does it here's the director lineup barry levinson wins for rain man the weirdest director win in like the past 30 years i don't know i mean that's a best like it's a you know best picture best director you know tandem that to me doesn't seem that weird alan parker for mississippi burning yes mike nichols does get nominated okay. for Working Girl. Okay. And then it's Charles Crichton for A Fish Called Wanda. Right. And Martin Scorsese for Last Temptation of Christ. Right. That is a very interesting best director lineup for sure. Fascinating. Yes. Um. Sorry, where was I? Yeah, so Valmont, Colin Firth plays uh, Valmont, Annette Benning as uh, uh, Mertule. Is that how we pronounce French things? I don't know. Sure. Um, Meg Tilly's in it for Ruza Balk, my beloved for Ruza Balk. Um, Sean Phillips, who is the played the Reverend Mother in the David Lynch Dune, um, now played by Charlotte Rampling in the Dune upcoming Villeneuve Dune that I cannot fucking <laughs> Charlotte wait for. Rampling with a full like full body face veil from the legendary House of Atreides. <laughs> if there wasn't if I wasn't already like yes, I am excited to see Dune the second I saw Charlotte Rampling in that trailer, my ass was already 
Chris, not in the theater because I am not going to movie theaters. No. But like, it was in. It was like, how do I get uh, VR to like put me in a? I will say, if they do this, like rent out a theater foolishness that they're doing for Tenet for Dune, I would do that for Dune. I think I, I think we're planning to do it for Dune. Yeah, like it's a good idea. Um, what is your familiarity with Dune as a franchise? Have you seen the David Lynch? Yes, I have. I have not read the books. I, I've felt the peer pressure to read the books. I would, but the books uh, are pretty dense. I tried to read the book and I sort of was thwarted. Um, it's like eight hundred pages. Yes. Uh, I become the meme of I ain't reading all that, but I'm happy for you or sad that happened. Yeah, I I might try and do it again. I watched the the David Lynch version, but I also watched the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries Dune and then Children of Dune, which is actually how I first ever saw James McAvoy in Children of Dune. Um, Rex is a desert planet. Uh, yes, Arrakis Desert Planet. Um, uh, Virginia Madsen, uh, voiceover iconic. Um, I'm so excited. I'm so excited for Dune. I'm, I'm, can't wait. But the fact that the trailer, A, is like wall to wall Charlotte Rampling voiceover, which amazing. Uh, and then B, like crescendos with Dark Side of the Moon <laughs> is. <laughs> fucking amazing it's like could not have been more uh, like a children's chorus of oh Dark Side it's of so Moon. good oh my god it's remember so the the like years of uh trailers just having children choruses of rock songs oh yeah social network back. for sure um we should absolutely bring that back yeah but it wasn't just social network a lot of different like bad action movies that wanted to look more serious than they were yeah did that too yeah um, let Billie Eilish do all of that. Let her lead a children's choir. Let oh. Billie Eilish do a song for every movie that is theoretically scare quotes being released this fall yeah. because her Bond song is great. <laughs> Very good. Very true. So um, back to Milos Forman, though. He does Valmont in 1989. He has, um, I mean, to the degree that he needed to make a comeback, he has a bit of a comeback in 96 with The People versus Larry Flint, which doesn't get a Best Picture nomination, but does get a Best Director nomination for him. Was, like, one of the big uh, expected, like, Best Picture players of that season, too. And I think that's how the, like, Lone Director nomination shows up for that movie, is that it was so, um, like, the hype for it was real in terms of Oscar. Yes, absolutely. Well, and what was the studio on People versus Larry Flint? That was... I just watched this movie. Columbia. Um, it was Columbia Pictures. Yeah, and so that Sony was movie. in that big famous year of everything indie, like, Jerry Maguire was the only studio movie in the Best Picture field that year. So, mm-hmm. like, People versus Larry Flint never really felt like it fit the narrative of that year because it was a studio mm-hmm. movie. Um, and it was released at like Christmas. I think it premiered at like New York Festival. Yeah, that would make um, sense. It but definitely it was opened a Christmas late. Movie. I think Christmas like... Day. <laughs> Christmas Day '96. Go watch a Larry Flint movie. But like, even like Woody Harrelson's Best Actor nomination that year felt kind of like outside of everything that was going on. It was sort of happening in its own sphere. There was the a whole Courtney thing love like, of it all. Like the Academy was never going to go for Courtney Love at that time. See, Courtney Love though was the aspect of that movie that did kind of fit in with the narrative, with the indie narrative of that year. Because mm-hmm. I think we talked about this before about that SNL sketch that was like Courtney Love and Madonna oh, and sketch. Debbie Reynolds who all got snubbed by the Oscars that year. It's Coffee Talk, right? That was a Coffee Talk. Maybe that very well. That's very possible. Yeah. Um, it's the one where Sherry O'Terry as Debbie Reynolds calls Madonna mattress back, which I think is so <laughs> fucking funny. Um, 
But yeah, I think that's, I think the most, because Courtney Love being in that movie at that time, she would had only been, I think at that point in Feeling Minnesota, which I think might have been that same year or maybe just the uh-huh. year before or whatever. But like had she was- not yet been in 200 Cigarettes. Right. She was I still very much cigarettes. this like very kind of maverick choice for this role. And she's great in it. She's like super fantastic. He works with her again- uh, on his next movie, which is Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey. The Andy Kaufman biopic. Was there absolutely like talk about behind it. the scenes stuff on that movie with him and Courtney and, and Jim Carrey? Was did I don't everybody know get along? About I can't remember. That I if I'm remembering correctly, I, Carrey was like method on that movie yes. and I think pissed some people off. I think it was Courtney because I think when they did that uh, documentary about him on Netflix a couple of years ago, which yeah, I actually I remember really see. liking. And I, I remember him being like super method and I think it alienated Courtney to mm. some degree. I could be wrong. Anyway, somebody correct me if I'm wrong about that. But anyway, it and so I think once you got to Man on the Moon, you really get a sense of looking back through his career. And it's like, he really does trend towards making movies about iconoclasts, right? Where it's, you Mm -hmm. know, it's Amadeus, it's McMurphy and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's Larry Flint, it's Andy Kaufman. And it's these figures who... Salieri. Right. But it's these... Alexa, play Salieri. (laughs) But it's these figures who, and this is why I mentioned, you know, Amadeus uh, uh, more so than... Um, Salieri is just like these figures who sort of like clash against their times and whatever. Mm-hmm. And which is why Goya's ghosts feel such an odd fit with this because at every turn, Goya sort of declines to be that iconoclast in this movie. And he sort of blends into the tapestry. And even when he's trying to sort of do good things for Inez after she gets out of the asylum or like, you know, it always feels like he's, if not defending the status quo, like the fact that at that dinner with Inez's parents, and he's the one who's like trying to get them to stop this stunt that they're doing, stunt queen extraordinaire, uh, Inez's father, um, with Lorenzo, with, you know, making him sign the document saying he's a monkey or whatever. And Goya's only participation in that is like trying to get them to stop. And he gets like thrown out of the house before the interesting thing happens. And it's just like, he's so defending the status quo of that moment. And I don't know. It again, feels like a message was on the horizon there and it never gets followed through on. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you feel like? How do you feel about like Foreman's career in general? Uh, I mean, I think he's fascinating. His later work, I don't think is very good. I don't even really care for People versus Larry Flint, to be honest. I thought it was just a pretty. I don't. Here's my thing. I don't care for uh, Alexander Karaszewski, um Oh, interesting. Script collaborations. Not even all uh, of their movies are exactly the same. They like even like my problem. My problems with Dolomite were absolutely the fact that they had written it because like all of their movies are structured exactly the same. Um, What did you think about OJ though? American Crime Story, Uh, OJ Simpson. 
I still have to watch American Crime uh, Story. You know how I feel about Ryan Murphy. It's um, so so good, though. It genuinely. I'm I mean, sure it is. I'm sure. It, I'm sure it's the one. And I know that like he has so little to do with that show. Um, yeah, Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski's, uh filmography is as fascinating as any auteur filmmaker's filmography. Where it's Problem Child, the Problem Child beats Two. Of every one of their screenplays hit the same exact marks every time, and it drives me crazy. Go, go on, explain this. I don't know. It's just like. <sighs> Like, Dolomite is the same movie. I can't even say, like, people are going to not understand what I'm saying. But, like, the structure of how, like, underdogs in their movies, like, are underestimated and then they have success and then they still don't ever have, like, mainstream success or, like, mainstream understanding. Like, all of their movies are the same. Like, to me, Dolomite hits the same eyes as Big Eyes, hits the same notes as Man on the Moon. Like Ed Wood, they did the screenplay for just, Ed Wood. Ed Wood, even though like I like Ed Wood, I like—I mean, like I like parts of Man on the Moon, and I love Dolomite. Other than like the fact that I know everywhere it's going because I know it's written by them. So they have all of those movies, and yet the other ones that sort of fill out their filmography are Problem Child and Problem Child Two. Um, Amazing. The That Darn Cat remake with um, <laughs> Christina Ricci and um, famous Jamaican bobsledder Dougie Doug. Their directing uh, effort, which was the movie Screwed with Norm MacDonald and Danny DeVito, that I wouldn't watch if I was under um, threat of violence. And uh, they did the screenplay for 1408, the Stephen King adaptation with John like, Cusack and terrible. Samuel L. Jackson that I absolutely saw in the theater. So, yeah, it's it's interesting that they have, like, all these very, very samey sort of, like, biopic films, the ones that you mentioned, and then dumb, dumb, dumb comedy. It's very strange. Anyway, love it. But Jason. to, like, the Milos Foreman side of it, like, I do wish Goya's Ghost was more Amadeus, which, like was an early quarantine movie for me to see for the first time but it's like it's so like like uh, it's funny and like satirical but like you still get to like enjoy all of this like i don't know eye candy of costumes and such but like it has an absolute perspective on its like its setting its time period whereas goya's ghosts is just this giant mishigas and a mess and yeah has none of those things where it feels like to some of your earlier points it feels like it could have been more of an amadeus type of right one little note i had about milish foreman in uh doing my research about his career is he was the head of the venice film festival jury in 2000 that gave their best actor award to javier bardem for before night falls that was the big breakthrough year for javier bardem he ends up getting an oscar nomination for that loses to russell crowe for gladiator but i wonder i reading that i was just like oh it's interesting i wonder if from that moment that foreman had his eye to work with bardem in this movie it's funny that this is our second bardem movie in a couple months after mother of course uh, mm-hmm. where I was sort of uh, 
so-so on him in Mother. You did not care for him very much in Mother at all. He was sort of the the worst part of it for you. He's just miscast in that movie. He might be miscast in this movie, too. I was going to say, how do you feel about him in this movie? He's such a villain. I mean... Uh, yeah and like i he is clearly a villain but the movie sometimes feels confused and i think the performance feels confused if he is or not but like he so clearly is like he is one of the like movers and shakers of like the actual inquisition right he rapes inez yep and like yeah, especially, the, I mean, like, the movie does kind of go through this shift in its second half, right? When the Inquisition is over and Napoleon is invading and it's like, it does kind of shift everybody's position, right? Like, even Goya's, like, deaf at this point and that's when he really has nothing to do with the movie. And Lorenzo comes back as this sort of, like, um, convert to French Enlightenment, right? Right. But it's still I like that I like that section for his character the most because it's so Bardem plays this character as such a a phony and mm-hmm. kind of like very obviously a phony, but like I think that works in that regard. And he's so um just the way that like when he's showing that Hieronymus Bosch painting to Napoleon's brother, and Napoleon's brother is clearly like a, you know, boorish about it is just like I don't find that a pleasant day in the country at all, or whatever. And, um, and Lorenzo is so appeasing about it, and is so just like, well, some people like it, and clearly this is not you know up to your standard or whatever. And he's so deferential and gross about it all. And again, I think Foreman really is trying to make some points about how certain, you know, people will sort of, you know, roll with the flow of whatever oppressive regime is coming through, and yada yada. And there was also a lot of talk at the time, this is sort of pivoting away from Bardem for a second, but there was a lot of talk Mm -hmm. at the time about this movie as a commentary on uh, American torture practices during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Sure. I mean, especially this era when, like, movies are kind of starting to grapple with that. It's hard to even um, decontextualize images of torture on screen, and they're pretty horrific in this movie. Yeah. Um, uh, from what was actually going on in the rest of the world. The particular mode of torture in this is the people are, their wrists are bound behind their back and they're like lifted into the air and essentially like their arms are being like slowly, like almost separated from their body. And it's just, and the uh, both uh, Portman and Bardem, when they're in these scenes of it, it's just this agonizing, just like, you know, pain and screaming and and torture and it's like obviously awful but it's also like that those are the mo- the two moments in the movie where everything feels the most sort of authentically serious and grave whereas almost everything else there is this almost like mischievous sense of satire at the edges of everything uh-huh. am i wrong i don't think i'm wrong about yeah. that yeah no, like that's that's the thing that I feel like could have made this movie work if that was more pronounced Me because too. like you're kind of left questioning if it's supposed to be there or not. Like it's so um undefined. Yes. And this makes me wonder if like the version that eventually made it to 
the screen is like way chopped down from like a three hour version of this where you have that more clear that yeah. you know yeah. it has that kind of Amadeus winking nature to some of it. Yeah. No, you're right. This is also, as you noted in our uh, in our outline, this is the same year, 2007, when it finally makes it into uh, American theaters, quote unquote theaters. I would love to know what theaters actually played Goya's Ghosts uh, upon its release. But 2007, of course, the same year as Javier Bardem's Oscar for No Country for Old Men. Which, like, if there was anything helping this movie get swept under the rug, <laughs> yeah, immediately, yeah, that I think was <laughs> all of Javier Bardem's management team was just like, uh, yes. no, thank you, scrub this movie, scrub this movie. But it's also the same year as Norbit's um, Ghost. <laughs> yes, Norbit's Ghost. Uh- <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, uh, this whole week preparing for this episode, I've been thinking of I Was Walking with a Ghost. Oh, wait, great, what song uh, is that? I Was Walking with a yes. Ghost. Yeah. Great song. Yeah. Uh, but this is also the same year as Hotel Chevalier, where it's like, mm-hmm. Naked Natalie Portman! And the internet entirely freaked out yeah. over it. So let's let's do the Portman so thing it's like, now. I think that's a good uh, yes, yes. That's a good uh, pivot to Portman. So as I said, as you mentioned, 2004, she gets the Oscar nomination for Closer, so well deserved. She wins the Golden Globe, so well deserved. It is uh, towards the end of her Star Wars career. By this point, we all knew that. Star Wars was not the uh, the gift to her career that uh, she and we and uh, America may have hoped it would have been. So, Star Wars Episode Three, two thousand five, and then she's finally free of it. That same year, she does V for Vendetta with the Wachowskis, and completely like shaves off her head, like shaves off her hair, um, kind of pivots into. This sort of badass persona. She also does um, the around that time. She does the SNL hosting gig. Damn, Natalie, you a crazy chick. You shut the f- up and suck my. D- I'm fucking dudes mouths like gushers, mother. F- roll up on NBC and smack a s- out, Jack Sucker. What you want, Natalie? To drink and fight. What you need, Natalie? Just f- all night. Don't me Where she does rapping. the rap. And she's just like, she's, it's, it's, you know, it's career pivot time for Natalie Portman. And it was very, very necessary. But so then she, again, as I say, sort of like wanders this desert where she's in the one segment of Paris Chetemp. Did she direct a segment or was she just in it? I think she, I'll double check. I think she directs in New York, I Love You. I think that's what it is. Ah, yes, that's what it is. But like, it's definitely a period of her kind of trying I mean, not to play armchair psychologist but like reacting to the whole star wars of it yeah. all she even goes and does an israeli film called free zone right co-starring my beloved yama bus yes she makes uh wong kar wise american uh debut in my blueberry nights a movie the disastrous my blueberry nights that was one that i think a lot of people were looking for as an oscar play obviously with wong kar wise Mm -hmm. sort of translating into the american uh idiom and did not work one of her three films with jude law the iconic 
Portman Law uh, film film over, which I think is such a funny like triptych. Like one of these days, just watch Cold Mountain and Closer and My Blueberry Nights all on the same night and see what that does to your brain. <laughs> um, <laughs> as you said, then Hotel Chevalier, which is the short film that was released in conjunction with the Darjeeling Limited. I, does she show up at all in actual the Darjeeling Limited? It's like for like half a second, right? Yes, for like half a second. Right. Um, I hate that movie. I love um, that movie. <laughs> Sorry. I hate that movie. Um, then, of course, the iconic, um, absolutely indelible... Hermagorium's Wonder, <laughs> Wonder Emporium. Yes, indeed. Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium, the movie that every time we do a uh, Natalie Portman co-stars or Dustin Hoffman co-stars in, uh, in category, somebody gets the fool idea that they're going to remember anything else about Mr. Magorium's Wonder Emporium. It never works. It never works out. <sighs> what a moment in time that was. And then 2008, the in indelible double feature of The Other Boleyn Girl and The Other Woman, which... Um, the Other Woman, which premieres that year and doesn't get released for like another year and a half. So like this whole thing of like delayed movies kind of got like stamped onto Natalie Portman for a minute because even The Other Boleyn Girl was supposed to be an Oscar season movie. We'll absolutely eventually do an episode on it. Yes. And then it got pushed to like the spring. The Other Woman is uh, a Don Roos movie. Don Roos, who I absolutely mm-hmm. adore, who made uh, The Opposite of Sex and... Boys on the Side. He wrote Boys on the Side. I don't think he directed it. And who we talked about yeah. when we did our episode on Bounce. Yeah. He also made Happy Endings. Like, some, like, fantastic uh, actress collaborations with that. Wait, he also did the screenplay for the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel uh, Pie Society movie? I think we had, uh, yeah, the Potato movie. We, I think we had listeners being like, he did the potato movie! I, I probably just <laughs> forgot. Long-time listeners know that oh. we, uh, we were fascinated by the potato You movie. know what movie he also wrote, as I'm seeing here on his filmography? Your recent unfave, uh, Love Field. Oh, Jesus Christ. I caught up to Love Field recently, and it's absolutely abysmal. He also wrote the screenplay for Single White Female. Don Roos is a very fascinating filmography. That is one we don't talk about, interestingly enough, um, in terms of queer excellence and sometimes non-excellence, as Love Field uh, shows. But he gave me boys on the side. That's uh, That counts for a lot. Anyway, Other Boleyn Girl, Other Woman, 2008-2009, Natalie Dynamo. As I mentioned, 2009, she acts in and directs in two separate segments of New York, I Love You, which I didn't see the uh, American offshoot of Paris Chatem that, I don't know, seemed fine. I, I didn't. I think once they were like, one segment is Brett Ratner's segment. I was just like, okay, don't do that. Don't do yeah. that to me. I gotta go. I gotta go, y'all. I had just moved to New York then, too, so it was just like, oh my god, this, you know, new you city You can live mine. your own New York. You don't need to go to the cinema to love it. Yeah. 2009 Brothers, which we did an episode on, which um, is her sort of, like, inching back into prestige drama, and it almost made it, like, Brothers is, like, very, very close to uh, being sort of back in the moment, but wasn't quite... And then 2010, well, she makes Hesher, which, like, nobody remembers except for, um, who is it? Scategories Night. I was going to say Scategories Night. Uh, Hesher is always <laughs> remembered as a summer movie. Good for us. Good for everybody. <laughs> and then uh, Black Swan. And see, and then Black Swan, I think, is just, like, Natalie's back. 
motherfuckers. And yeah, um, God, it's such a great, I don't know. It's, um, for, this is a very odd era of her career, right? Like this is the most sort of undefinable era of her career. Where people don't really know what to do with her. Yes. Because as like, as is sometimes her problem, and is oftentimes her uh, great success, Natalie Portman loves a choice. Yeah, yeah. And, like, uh, yes. Th- perhaps the problem with Goya's Ghost is that, like, Natalie Portman is given uh, a lot of choices yeah. uh, that she um, gets to make. But, like, I don't know. Jackie is, like, the choice is the voice Black Swan, like, the choice is this, like, wounded little girl-ness that, like, approaches everything. Yeah. And, I don't know, I'm trying to think of some of the other, like... I mean, Vox Lux is choice choice the movie. Like, Vox Lux is nothing but a choice. (laughs) Vox Lux, again, the choice is the voice. Um, The choice is the voice. But it's the singing voice. No, it's also the accent. You're totally right. Like, that, like, that tough... Tough chick accent. It's so... God, fucking Vox Lux is so great. Um, I feel like you made the excellent point in the past that, like, one of the reasons she's so great in Annihilation is there is no choice or no, like, discernible one. It's just a great performance. I will ride... kind of this, like, raw... um, It's also just a... It's a... (laughs) Depression, basically. And it's a movie star carrying a film that is some, like, really tough uh intellectual material right where it's just like it's hard to wrap Mm -hmm. your head around what's going on in annihilation annihilation but she absolutely carries you through it because she's a fucking movie star and yeah um i i mean i will go to the mat for the fact that annihilation is one of her all-time great performances and deserved an oscar nomination yeah she's fantastic also lucy in the sky the choice is the haircut right (laughs) <laughs> well and also the choice is the voice the choice is the voice um, okay maybe <laughs> boy that's <laughs> if, if we're looking for you know merch alert like the choice is the voice is also a uh just the choice is the voice with like a silhouette of of natalie portman something i don't know uh-huh um something that we couldn't get sued for using her likeness <laughs> <laughs> the, the i guess maybe uh her uh reverse profile that would work for lucy in the sky lucy in the sky which we both saw together fully in a bad mood and we were like this is not going to <laughs> why were we in such a bad mood for that mood. screening i can't remember we were though we were in it was just like the 19th day yeah of it was we were exhausted at that it's point true. we knew it was going to be bad and probably not fun bad yeah who knew that that was one of the last movies we'd ever see at tiff i know well for now na- for now for now we'll be back we'll be back. i hope so um yeah yeah natalie so yeah it's 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 not a good performance i just i keep trying you know you know me and natalie it's genuinely i think the wildest thing i've ever seen her do yeah and that's saying something that's genuinely it's saying, saying something. quite a bit yeah i don't know if it's fun though like i guess the most like it's not fun it's absolutely into not fun. the movie yeah. and the most like absorbed by it was when she was on screen because i was like you know what, Natalie? Do you, you you go for this? You you do this, like. And I suppose post Oscar nomination, this is like the first big 
choice that she makes, right? Like That's why we all had it on our Oscar predictions, because it was Natalie coming off of Closer, where she got kind of, you know, overtaken in that Oscar race by Blanchett. But there were a lot of people, me included, who thought she, you know, at some point in that race, thought she had a a a Mm -hmm. target on Oscar for that. And it didn't feel like she was second place come Oscar no, ceremony, no. but like I think for a, a large portion of that season, she was second place. Yes, I think that's true. I think Virginia Madsen ultimately probably gets second place. Was second yeah. place at the end of the day. I agree. Um, but so that's why everybody was looking at this of just like she's leveling up. She's working with Milos Forman, two-time Oscar-winning director. He directed Woody Harrelson to his first nomination for Larry Flint, and she's this is it. This is her moment. She's, you know, it sounds like an important title. Goya's Ghost just sounds very artistic and important. And it just fully doesn't happen. Can we detour for half a second and talk about the fact that within a two-year span, Randy Quaid starred in Brokeback Mountain and Goya's Ghosts with Milos Forman. And in this one place, King Charles of Spain. Like, I, you, that was one of the times where you broke the texting. I did, Margo, like, yeah. Not Randy Quay. I and was not prepared. I fully admitted a sound out of my mouth. I was not silent when he showed up on screen. <laughs> I must have missed his screen credit. I fully missed his screen credit. I was not ready either. Um, He, again, is, I think, betrays this idea that Foreman wanted was up to some mischief in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely... uh, There are the signs, I think, that the final movie we got was not the intended... Was not the approach that they had, at least at a screenplay level. Because if if this movie is more like Amadeus and, like, tries to have a satirical... Whether or not it's a funny satirical or, like, a harsher point of view... Like, why would you cast Randy Quaid in this movie as a... F- He's French, right? Or is he Spanish? He's the French king of Spain. Right. Yeah. That back when European royalty was the big old fucking mess. Um, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I think part of it is that Foreman is, in very many ways, a 1970s director. And a director who sort of has his feet planted firmly in that sort of era of... Hollywood slash international filmmaking. And I think for those people, Randy Quaid is still to some degree the guy who was sort of the breakout star of The Last Detail, the Hal Ashby movie where he and Jack Nicholson star together. And it was, I mean, there was a moment. Did he get nominated for the Oscar? He did get nominated for the Oscar for that, Uh for Best Supporting Actor. So, like, there was a moment where, like, Randy Quaid was not... um, the Randy Quaid of Shitter's Full, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, and... Uh, or the Randy Quaid of Now. Or the Randy... Ooh. Well, that's... I think that's... I'm, I'm willing to put that fully aside and just sort of, like, talk about, like, getting into the Michigas of Randy Quaid as a lunatic, truther, psychopath is almost too depressing to talk about. But, like, even just, like, his screen persona of Cousin Eddie in the Vacation movies and um the the pilot in uh, Independence Day or whatever. So, like, people of my and your generation 
have a very different, I think, conception of Randy Quaid. Whereas, like, I think Milos Forman probably still looks at him from that sort of 1970s thing. And yet, he absolutely is casting him for lunacy in this movie. Yeah, it's, it's intentional casting. He's in Paper Moon. There's a lot of 70s movies that Randy Quaid is in that I'm sort of curious now to go... And look, he's in Bound for Glory. He's in Midnight Express. Like, truly. Oh, yeah, I mean, like, he worked with a ton he was legit. of major filmmakers. Yeah. You, this, talk about early quarantine movies. You very eagerly uh, uh, had me watch What's Up Doc, which was a great success. Incredible. Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand, who's so good in that movie. So, like, Peter Donovich's Polly Platts. What's up, Doc? There you go. Yes. Thank you, uh, Ms. Longworth. Um, That's yeah. me. Randy Quaid. <laughs> yes. Is there anything to say about Stellan Skarsgård in this movie? Unfortunately not. I would love to have a conversation about Stellan Skarsgård sometime because he is a fascinating actor. Talked about somebody who, like, never stops working, has worked with amazing, uh, like, filmmakers across the board. And, like, we never talk about that with him, probably because he's, like, so good at just, like, showing up and being the type of actor who can, like, feel like he works with any different type of movie. What was the first thing you remember seeing Stellan Skarsgård in? Uh, probably, I mean, it probably actually is Goodwill Hunting, but yeah. uh, I saw <laughs> Breaking the Waves at far too young of an age. I saw Breaking the so Waves the after first time that, he, yeah. Yeah, I think he, uh, that's probably the first time he made a real impression on me, which is a shame because he's great in Goodwill Hunting. See, Goodwill Hunting definitely made an impression on me. And forever after that, it was everything that I would see him in was sort of like, oh, it's the guy from Goodwill Hunting until I. It's the Goodwill Hunting villain. Yes. Um, and then he sort of becomes, he makes a bunch of other Von Triers, right? Because he's in Dogville. God, he's mm-hmm. so upsetting in Dogville. He's so. Ugh, God, everybody. I mean, everybody in Dogville is upsetting, but he's like especially he's upsetting. upsetting. Yeah, he's he does have a very interesting career, and he works a fucking ton. You're totally right. And mm-hmm. he's in the MCU. <laughs> he's absolutely in the MCU. He's like running around bare ass naked in the MCU at one point. There's a whole yeah. fucking thing. He's in the the later Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Um, he's it, it's some interesting. He's of course we can't forget the iconic. Uh, drunken sailor turn in Mamma Mia. What the hell is he doing in Mamma Mia? His his whole vibe in that I movie. I love that he's in Mamma Mia. I love that he shows up in those movies. Like we, if we think of him as anything, he's like a serious right actor. But and yet he shows up in those movies and has probably as good of a time. I was going to say else he shows up in that movie and throws his full ass into making that role entertaining like he just has I no bet that he had more fun on the mama mia set than meryl did yeah that's probably true nothing against meryl but yeah uh, nothing against meryl but like i'm sure that like you know he had more fun yeah yeah stalin scars guards a real trip <laughs> for sure um and has worked with just like just fantastic directors is the other thing he just you know von trier and fincher and you know i don't know some great ones. Rubinsky, even though it's with the, the later Pirates movies. And Milos Forman, who... Yeah. Yeah, I wish there was more to say about him in this role. He doesn't... 
I just don't find it very interesting. I just don't find it the character or what he brings to the character. Yeah, I really couldn't understand anything to do with Goya, the artist in this movie whatsoever. I mean, it is kind of like an aughts thing I thought of, that it's like painter movies so we're yeah what what are the other painter movies of this era i mean girl with a pearl earring that's the one i was later but mr turner right yeah 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 yeah. the great painter movies of the 21st century yeah uh one thing i did uh mention to you earlier in this week that i wanted to talk about because goya's ghost was one of these movies that was on the oscar horizon for at least two years and was sort of this like mirage as it turned out in the future of just like it's a Milos Forman movie with Javier Bardem and Natalie Portman how can it miss and I'm fascinated by these movies that kind of are on the horizon for an extended period of time and we it takes us so long to give up the no pun intended ghost on these movies where and of course, the we very spend time walking with that ghost. The very first one that I mentioned is the one that is still on the horizon and may well never be made. And maybe it's for the best that it'll never be made; that it only exists as a as a fantasy. But um, the ever enduring Flora Plum that Jodie Foster still seems to want to make at some point, bringing it back, baby. I want early episodes where we talked about nothing but Flora Plum for like hours at a time. Flora Plum, though, never got into no. did it get into production or did no. they like film for a week i forget i don't think it ever did i and think it was just down. casting i think it was cast with what russell crowe and claire danes right yeah 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 and it's what it's a sir it's a uh, the only thing i know about a movie is that it's the circus movie that it was uh russell crowe yeah. and claire danes and they're in the circus and that's all we know that's probably all we will ever know about flora plum but god damn it one of these days but I jotted down a couple examples of like other movies because like there's there are the movies that are sort of these long rumored things. You know, Terry Gilliam had been trying to make the Don Quixote movie for years. Um, there's a whole documentary made about it. It feels like they there was a plan to make a Confederacy of Dunces for like ever and ever. Like all these sort of like Lily Tomlin and uh, Will Ferrell, I believe, were attached to that at one point. All of the different like Steven Spielberg in development movies that like last forever. But the ones I'm mostly thinking of are the ones that are like concrete projects that do eventually get made, but like are just in the works for so long, and we're maybe like we're casting oscar futures on them and when they're just still in development but i'm thinking about the all the king's men remake that is eventually Mm -hmm. released in i want to say 2006 but had been on the docket for like at least two years before that uh do you remember the john turturro musical romance and cigarettes absolutely i remember i never movie. saw it did you ever see it i never saw it either no with uh, uh, kate winslet's in that and james gandolfini and some other people and wait now i want to look up the entire cast of that because i am intrigued uh just the idea of just like a was it also in black and white or is that coffee and cigarettes i'm thinking of that's coffee and cigarettes okay i'm conflating the two the fact that those two were also right susan sarandon's in this movie romance and cigarettes eventually released um did that play festivals i think it may have hold on it played toronto I'm and venice sure toronto. toronto and venice in 05 and then it doesn't get released in the united states until 2007 so uh susan sarandon uh, i love you philip morris applies for this it played like sundance and wasn't released for another 
two years almost after that. Uh, the Nikki Caro movie that was eventually released under the title A Heavenly Vintage, but for forever was known as The Vintner's Luck, which starred Vera Farmiga and played Tiff in 09 and didn't get released until a DVD release in the United States in 2012. Okay, can I just read you, though, for a second, the cast list for Romance and Cigarettes? Now Absolutely. I kind of do want to watch it, even though everybody who saw it did not like it. But it's so the big stars are Kate Winslet, Susan Sarandon, James Gandolfini, Bobby Cannavale, Steve Buscemi, Mary Louise Parker. Uh, but then it gets into Mandy Moore, Christopher Walken, Elaine Stritch, Eddie Izzard, Amy Sedaris, Tanya Pinkins. Like, this shit is I mean, how terrible legit. can this movie be? I kind of want to watch it today. Like, I'm sure it's fascinating. I want to find it. I'm sure it's available somewhere. Um, the poster is, I always find it funny, it was just this, like, woman with her, like, very pulpy boobs hanging out, uh, essentially with, you know, a cigarette in her hand and a, you know, bright red pump, just like harlotry personified. Um, yeah, now I want to see it for sure. Uh, Jane Got a Gun, speaking of Natalie Portman, is one of these yeah. movies which like, honest, obviously had a fraught production history, for sure. Um, Margaret, obviously, the long, long, Margaret's long... Margaret's a huge one. ...delayed. The, the David it, O. Russell just, movie that was originally called Nailed. Nailed. And now it's like Accidental Love Right, or which I also never saw. But these the movies are, like, they're fascinating to me in terms of, like... They only exist in our heads, or at least they like most prominently exist in our heads. These, and when I say us, I mean people who follow the Oscar race far too closely. Um, and their, their images change in our heads over time from this impending blockbuster. And when I say blockbuster, I don't necessarily mean financial, but in terms of, you know, awards success, blockbuster. Yeah, awards blockbuster. Uh, to, these punchlines when they eventually are you know released and it's foundational to what we are as a podcast well they're almost like these little like shibboleth words right where it's just like i'll be like the vintner's luck and only people who understand what i'm talking about can like gain access to uh, our podcast or something do you know what i mean (laughs) people that know what you're talking about know that you just made a joke right exactly Um, exactly yeah it's also a little bit like trickier to talk about now because it feels like the studio apparatus and even down to like the independent distributor like apparatus like everything is so completely planned out um because like so much of it is like tent poles that like you don't see these movies that just like get shuffled around a lot like some of this we're even talking about like like the other Berlin girl that gets like pushed back by like six months where you think it's an awards movie and then it gets pushed out of the season and you know what that means. Yes. Like that's not a thing anymore. Uh, we were texting um, about before uh, this podcast record started because we were uh, texting with Katie Rich, uh, our friend and former podcast guest Katie Rich, about our, uh, <laughs> things that we were watching at TIFF this time this day in history sort of uh years ago we're all hardcore missing being in toronto guys it's really it's sad it's it's tough um me most especially and i miss that town this time in 2015 i was watching what was then titled about ray and was eventually released as uh, a movie called three like generations later 
Yeah, but it's it's that's you know it just sort of it plays. These are movies that will like will play a, pe- a festival, and everyone's like, no, and the studio still wants to like try and make a go of it. So they will often change the title, uh, re-edit. Obviously, we did one of our very earliest episodes on Tulip Fever, which was a famous example of that, where you know early test audiences, of which I was one, uh, did not care for it. They were somehow never changed that title, which I think is hysterical, because as I mentioned on that episode, when we got the questionnaire after seeing the movie, there were two separate questions about whether we liked the title, which... Uh, <laughs> and it's still such an odd title. But the title's the title of the book, though. Yeah, but I think that, I mean, that's doesn't necessarily uh, set in stone. I think they were just very, very worried about having a title with uh, Tulip in it that, you know, would make... So many people just be like, I'm not watching a movie about tulips. Anyway, I would love to watch a movie about tulips that was better. I, I, I mean, whatever. Tulip Fever is another one of those punchline movie titles. But like, that's another movie where like, there's just enough weird shit going on in that movie that I'm just like, I would have liked to have seen the fully insane version of Tulip Fever. <laughs> where it's all Cara Delevingne making tulip deals on the stock exchange floor that they have for the tulip. Uh, market. I'll never forgive that movie for making me sympathize with Christoph Waltz. <laughs> I just won't do it. Um, do we want to get into the Yoga Awards? We always want to get into the Yoga Awards. We love the Yoga Awards. <laughs> Frequently show up in this podcast. The Spanish so. Razzies. They are uh, 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 not qu- not exactly uh, the backward spelling of Goya, but you get it. You get it. Not yeah. The the Spanish Oscars are the Goya Awards. Yes, the Goyas. Yes, of which this movie was nominated for three. Yeah, that's kind of funny. What were the three Goya nominations? Uh, okay, hold on. I'm pulling this back up. I know that one of them is costumes, costume design. Yeah. <laughs> Makeup and hair. the styling. cost? Okay, that's fully freaking insane. <laughs> yeah, and best special effects. So I guess there's visual effects or whatever. I guess, but like, yeah, okay. So three Goya nominations, but it gets uh, <laughs> a special mention at the. Uh, oh no, wait, that's the that's something called Borgia, not uh, Goya. Hold on a second. No, let me look up Goya's ghosts. Uh, worst Spanish actor goes to Javier Bardem in Goya's Ghosts, which at the yogas. Se- or sorry, uh, at the at the yogas, um, which seems harsh. To me, I think that's pretty harsh. Like, I don't, I, I mean, like, again, I think he's just miscast, but like, it's probably more of a thing that it's the movie that they're really shitting on. And they have Javier Bardem as a Spanish actor in the movie. So they're finding a way to shit on the movie. He's won, quote unquote, won two yoga awards in his entire career. The other for worst hairstyle in Skyfall, which again, Seems Maybe. seems mean. Skyfall's a good Talk movie. About more jaw acting. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's very a uh, uh, tooth trauma. The movie is uh, <laughs> is his role in Skyfall. Yeah, in Skyfall. Gay tooth trauma. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, the the yogas this year, though, that Javier Bardem is a winner of, uh-huh. uh, are fully unwell when you get into their foreign categories. Yes. Yeah, they they yeah. honor the worst in Spanish filmmaking, but then they absolutely just take several shots at American films, because why not? We deserve it. I mean, sometimes it just feels like, and their worst foreign actress uh, winner for this is the same. They're just like the Razzies in that they love 
love to just marinate in a vat of sexism and misogyny. Yes. Um, like, uh, notedly, uh, Jennifer Lawrence was a winner in this category for Mother. Of course she was. Uh, but their worst foreign actress winner is Sharon Stone for Basic Instinct 2, which was, at the time of its release, the critical reception was very much, how dare this 50-year-old woman be naked on screen. Um, did you ever see Basic Instinct 2? I never did. I didn't. I would absolutely watch the hell out of it right now and probably have a good goddamn time with it. But, like, that was the sh- critical reception of that movie was so repulsive yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. In that, like, it was just, like, naked sexism everywhere and no one cared about how, like, absolutely uh, repulsive they were being towards Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone For has... her audacity in making that movie. This was Sharon Stone's second yo- uh, yoga win, uh, the first being for Sliver in 1993. She has won two Worst Actress Razzie Awards. Would you care to guess what they are? What they are for. Uh, probably Basic Instinct 2 as well. Yes. And, uh, hmm. It's gotta be something like The Specialist, right? It's, it's gotta be one of those. Names. Absolutely, The Specialist. So 1995. Oh, it is The Specialist? Or sorry, 1994. She wins Worst Actress for two movies, The Specialist and Intersection. Sure. Yeah. She also wins for Worst Screen Couple for The Specialist with Sylvester Stallone. I mean, they loved to award Sylvester Stallone work. She's also been nominated a bunch of times. They, like, obviously... Sharon Stone is, like, the lowest of low-hanging fruit for things like the Razzies. So yeah, we can't be surprised. When you want to just, like, hate women. The other that's, yoga... That's what they do. That's their MO. The other yoga uh, awards this year, though, are pretty deserved. Pre- yeah. More like, or less. You can't really yell at these. Hanks I mean, isn't... more the- or less, like, we can have some of it... Yeah. Uh, but worst foreign actor is Tom Hanks for Da Vinci Code. Like, Which is not a good movie, is, but like, it's not like Hanks is abominable in it or anything. I was just having this conversation, uh, with a uh, friend and former guest, Rob Shear, that that is like his worst performance and also his least sexy performance. Oh, the hair is We're all awful. in agreement we that hate Tom that Hanks hair. is sexy. What's that? We're all in agreement that Tom Hanks is sexy, right? We would, we would do that. Yeah. More, yes. More often than not, yes. But definitely not in the Da Vinci Code. No, Absolutely. no, we all hate that hair. Yeah. Um, worst foreign director: M. Night Shyamalan, Lady in the Water. Well, deserved. feel like I'm a Lady in the Water apologist. I hate that movie. I like that movie. If you cut out everything with Bob Balaban, it's a completely different movie. Okay, but like the, the Bob Balaban, Balaban stuff is terrible. Okay, but that stuff is like central to his thesis for the movie. Which is, is that, like, though? the poor, critically maligned artist is uh, is going to be the one that saves the world. See, I think you cut those scenes out of the movie and, like, it, it's, it doesn't affect anything in the story. And, like, yes, I realize it is unintentionally funny when people are running around saying things like narf every two seconds. It's true. But I also feel the same way about Inception, and it doesn't make me like Inception any less. See, but Inception's a good movie, and Lady in the Water's a bad but movie. See, Lady in the Water, uh, whatever. You're, <laughs> we'll move on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put on my Milos Forman hat and say, M. Night Shyamalan is directing a bad movie, and Christopher Nolan was directing a good movie. <laughs> um, their worst foreign film winner is Oliver Stone's World Trade Center. Fair. Which is like exploitive maudlinness. The thing, the, the, the worst thing about World Trade Center is that it's not even a remarkably bad movie. It's just 
No, it's not. It's very, very average. It's we could do an episode on it eventually, but it would not be fun. No, um, no, would not. Uh, we would not have a fun, fun old time talking about that. Imagine just like cracking jokes, like we're prone to do. Yeah, I wouldn't. While want we're to like, do that. hey guys, nine eleven the movie. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. No, uh, thank you. Especially when it's a movie that's not fully embarrassing. Right, exactly. Like I said, it's just like it's. I think the the craziest thing about World Trade Center is that it's an Oliver Stone movie, because right, because it doesn't feel anything. There's like, no it's point so... of view to it. There's nothing. There's nothing. It has nothing to say. Yeah, it's very middle of the road. Very um, not even sentimental, but it's like it is first and foremost an emotional movie. Like, well, it also comes after. It's a year after Michael Moore does Fahrenheit 9/11, mm-hmm. which takes the point of view that you would have maybe expected somebody like Oliver Stone to take something incendiary, something rude, something conspiratorial, something angry. And World Trade Center is none of those. It's like, it's arm's length polite. It's sort of uh, non-specifically respectful. It's so strange and because it's an oliver stone movie who like we know what oliver stone was like in the 80s and the 90s and the type of movies he was making it feels like it's patting itself on the back for not being that exactly right like you would feels like it's patting itself on the back for being this uh reserved maybe not reserved comparatively uh like straightforward melodrama there was that scent there was that trend after 9-11 and now i can't think of anybody specifically so this is going to be sort of a toothless thing but uh after 9-11 there were a lot of artists whose reputations were somewhat counter-cultural or uh, uh avant-garde or rude or whatever who made a big show of being sort of pro-America, pro-troops after 9-11 to just be like, even Mm -hmm. I, noted iconoclast such and such, am, you know, am rooting for America at this moment. And it's just like, in retrospect, like you can, you sort of get it, you get it at the moment, right? Where we were going through a real national moment at that thing and we were all processing our stuff in certain ways. But like, I, I guess Aaron Sorkin's maybe my biggest example of it is yeah. if you watch The West Wing as I did, and you go back and watch it as I still do, you can really pinpoint the moment in time in the third season when the episodes start to get written after 9-11. Because like the first maybe like six or seven episodes of that season were written, and many of them produced before that happened. And then at some point, midway through season three, you really, really feel the shift. Absolutely. And he, it's, it's, I I don't know, the attitude of it is very sort of like American defensive. We have to, you know, uh, find a way to defend ourselves and we're under attack and yada, yada, yada. And I think ultimately Sorkin, I mean, Sorkin's got his problems all over the board, but like Sorkin ultimately in his later projects sort of like has backed away from that and has sort of like recalibrated himself. And yet I think that was indicative of a lot of artists at the time where it was just like, they really kind of rallied around America in ways that were understandable at the time, but in retrospect, 
probably, you know, a critical eye would have been more helpful at the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Anyway. Sorry, uh, that kind of brought us down on... in this silly, silly discussion <laughs> we're having about Natalie Portman's goofy <laughs> fake teeth. Uh, we could talk more about the fake goofy teeth before we uh, move on to the IMDb game. What are your last notes about uh, Goya's ghost? I mean, <laughs> so much of it really is the teeth. I was so shook and thrown the teeth, honey, the teeth. by that moment. It's There's also a line that I wrote down. My notes aren't many because I think once it's, at one point, once I realized what was going on, I was just like, I'm not making notes anymore. Um, there's a line when Lorenzo is talking to the Inquisition about the paintings that they find so um, objectionable and scary, where someone just goes, those are the whores smiling down on you from, smiling down on your mother from the ceiling. And I was just like, oh my, like, I want to stitch that on a, a, you know, frame that in a crochet or something. Tattoo that on my neck. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. What were your, what are your final notes on uh, Goya's ghost? I really wish Inez's daughter was named Betty. So that I could be saying You heard the rumors from Inez You can't believe a word she says most times But this time it was true Um, I don't know, man I, 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 sometimes we talk about these, like, lost-to-time artifacts of Oscar Minutia Like Goya's ghosts And it doesn't make sense Or like you can find things to like Defend about it And this one was truly uh, 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 Truth in history Of why this movie got lost And why it fell apart Though like there is a certain sense Of like there are movies probably Worse than this that get through um, Or uh, Movies less interesting than this That get through with Oscar That I wonder if there if a different distributor had picked this up or if like this was produced in house at like focus or something if this movie would have been able to register more or at least have like made more money than a million dollars like it did this is no worse a movie than the last station it's just more embarrassing at times do you know this does that make right. sense right Nothing in the last station, the the Helen Mirren Christopher Plummer movie about Tolstoy. Nothing in that movie is as fucking insane as Natalie's teeth in uh, the second half of this movie. But there's also nothing in the last station that is in any way memorable. So ultimately, Goya's ghosts kind of wins in that little head to head. Yes, yes. I don't know. Anyway, Goya's ghosts. Milos Forman, may he rest. Indeed, is uh, final feature. All right, IMDb game? IMDb game, Joseph. Explain the IMDb game to our lovely listeners. I shall. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and a free-for-all of teeth. Free-for-all of teeth. Maybe I should have, uh, for what I've chosen for you, pick and picked something that was like teeth related. Oh, that would be an interesting avenue to travel down. Jess Weixler, star of the movie Teeth. <laughs> um, it is that actress, right? Yes, it is. Also, a movie I need to catch up to. I've never seen. Teeth. Oh, Teeth is a time. It's 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 a real moment. It's got its moments. That's for sure. All right, uh, Joseph. Would you like to give or guess first? Why don't I guess first? 
All right. Uh, so the direction I did go for you was not teeth related. It was uh, movies about painters related. I chose uh, famously an Oscar shutout of a painter movie. Uh, the noted Timothy Spall of Mr. Turner. Oh, golly. Timothy Spall, who's been in 8 billion things. I will give you a pre-hint that none of these are a Harry Potter movie. Oh, that is an interesting pre-hint. Okay. And we used to... Uh, pre-hint. Not a word. Nope. But um, we we used to have the rule of no Harry Potter people. Although, I, no Harry Potter, no in Marvel. recent years, uh, both the Harry Potter movies and the Avengers movies are not quite as dominant in those actors' filmography. Or in those... They're really not. Uh, and the people that... Films. like. I'm not going to give you Chris Hemsworth ever, you know. <laughs> sure, fair. Uh, Timothy Spall, well, I would guess that Mr. Turner is one of them. Mr. Turner is one of them. Okay. Um, the thing about Timothy Spall is he was in movies before I knew that, like, Timothy Spall was a thing. Um, is one of them Secrets and Lies? One of them is Secrets and Lies. Okay. That's uh, that's the other big Mike Lee movie that he is sort of notable for. He's in other ones, of course, but my guess is that it's those two. At least one of these is going to be an American movie. I, I'm thinking. What are his American movies? Maybe he hasn't done a lot of American movies. Maybe that's the thing. You gotta get through it before I start helping you out. I know. I'm just working it out. Working it out in my head. You have two right guesses. You have no wrong guesses. Well, he so plays far. Churchill in The King's Speech, so I'm going to guess The King's Speech. The King's Speech is not there. God he is terrible in it. He really is. He is on a 12 out of 10 in that movie, that is for sure. And he needs to bring it down to maybe a six and all right so brit movies with timothy spall is he in pirate radio or am i making that up uh well pirate radio is not one of them is that a guess (laughs) yeah it was a guess i know now that i know it's wrong i can't take it back uh i'm looking and i don't see pirate radio okay i'm probably thinking of something else or someone else Anyway, all right, one more before I can get a hint. I'm missing two of them, right? Yes. Is Sweeney Todd one of them? Sweeney Todd is one of them. Okay, Sweeney Todd's one of those movies that, like, is on a lot of people's uh, IMDb's, I feel like. I feel like if, like, has the Hot Topic, like, cultural subset, is it still a thing? Maybe. Because if it is, I think that's why Sweeney Todd shows up. (laughs) You think the Hot Topic kids are all slamming IMDb looking for Timothy Yeah, if there are still Hot Topic kids, I think Sweeney Todd, like, they they love that movie. Okay, one movie we talked about uh, last week that he's definitely in, because I remember when I looked it up, he's either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern in the 1996 Hamlet, the Kenneth Branagh Endless Hamlet. Is that one of them? Uh, Endless Hamlet is not the answer, so you have two wrong guesses. Hold on, let me see if he's... He is, he is Rosencrantz, okay. so if that is actually a movie he has done, I will count that as a wrong guess. Your year is 2001. I mean, it's still a wrong guess if I guess a movie he's never made. It's just, like, an especially wrong guess. 
I feel like it shouldn't count if you guess something that they're not even in. Well, that's an interesting POV. I disagree, but okay. We can talk about that off mic. Okay. Um, to 2001, Oscar nominee. Oh, he's in Vanilla Sky. He is in Vanilla Sky. You got there sooner than I thought you would. I remember, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's Tom Cruise's little uh, work friend. He's like the good Fantastic. one. He's like the nice, the one in, in Tom Cruise's uh, father's organization who likes him. Poor Timothy Spall rarely gets cast as the nice one. He's always some dirty man. <laughs> I just watched Bertolucci's uh, The Sheltering Sky, where Timothy Spall is absolutely quoted as a um, gay pervert. Oh, no. Oh, no. And I was like, hmm, I don't like what they're doing with this character he's uh he's uh gay skis yeah. uh, <laughs> gay skis wasn't he also in did what did we talk about him recently in uh is it the painted veil is he in the painted veil am i wrong no that is um uh, that's toby jones yeah that's toby jones maybe toby jones is the one the in infamous. pirate radio i was thinking of that's not timothy spall anyway quite possible all right uh, for you, Chris, yes. I went the Milos Forman route, as uh, I often do the directors. Uh, he directed, as we have mentioned a couple times in this podcast, The People versus Larry Flint, and sort of was a sideways passenger on the awards trajectory that year of one Edward Norton, who was a supporting actor nominee for Primal Fear that year, the great junkie Primal Fear. Um... But was also, for some of those critics' awards that he got, was kind of looped in with also his performance in The People versus Larry Flint. So how about you do Edward Norton? Edward Norton, who is barely in The People versus Larry Flint, who, like, wasn't famous yet. Like, Primal Fear had more to do with that. And, like, apparently Edward Norton only agreed to do The People versus Larry Flint because of Milos Forman. And it's like... Oh my god, you egomaniac. Before you're even famous, you it's are like, true. oh, I guess I'll do this Milos Forman movie because it's Milos Forman. It's true. Um, all right. Okay. So, Edward Norton, three Oscar nominations. I'm going to say all of his Oscar nominations are there. So, Primal Fear, American History X, and Birdman. Primal Fear, correct. American History X, correct. Birdman, incorrect. One strike. Wow, that's interesting. It is interesting. I'm surprised by that. Huh. Mm. The Grand Budapest Hotel, because it shows up for everybody. It does. That is also incorrect. Uh, strike two. Wow. So you're going to get years. Your years are, and I think this is going to give you them pretty quickly, 2000 and 2019. 2019 is it motherless brooklyn it's, what is wrong with people? i don't know but it's insane that uh it's motherless brooklyn yep god i ugh, we are I gonna do motherless, do motherless brooklyn, brooklyn for this podcast at some point and at some point down the line five years from now yeah. and i'm gonna be very mad that i have to watch it again um, i've still never seen terrible it movies. it's terrible um 2000 so is that the score no that's the year of the score i'm pretty sure but uh that is not it no the score was 2001 uh okay so he only made one is he credited as the actor or the director is it keeping the faith 
He's credited for his acting performance, but it is Keeping the Faith. He also did direct that movie. But uh, I kind of really like that movie. I've never seen it. Joseph Reed, you would love Keeping the Faith. I'm not a Jenna Elfman guy. I, the idea of a romantic a Gen- I mean, comedy with those three actors is so strange to me. Like, And I've liked Ben Stiller in things. I've liked Ben Stiller in romantic comedies. Reality Bites is one of my very favorite movies. And yet... First of all, Anne Bancroft is in this movie. She will negate anything that you are uh, opposed to in this movie. Who else? Now I'm looking at the cast for this movie. Eli Wallach. Okay, I'm looking at the cast. Oh my god. Milos Forman is in it? (laughs) Milos Forman's in this movie. Okay, this cast is fully unwell slash fantastic. Edward Norton, Ben Stiller, and Jenna Elfman are the central love triangle. Anne Bancroft. Wow. Wait, Ben Stiller playing a rabbi and Edward Norton as a, as a priest. That's like the angle yes, here. Yes, yes, Anne yes, Bancroft, yes, yes. Eli Wallach, Ron Rifkin, A+, Milos Forman, Holland Taylor, A+, lesbian excellence, Lisa Edelstein from uh, House and also various things, the West Wing pilot, Rena Sofer, who... Most people don't know she's a soap opera star. She was my beloved Lois on General Hospital. And if anybody out there is listening, you know that that's true. She's so good. Ken Lung from uh, um, Lost, among other things. Susie Essman Amazing. from uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. What a cast. I am going to watch this. All right, so I'm what's on my you, list? You're going to like this movie. After, <laughs> after recording this podcast, I'm watching Romance and Cigarettes and Keeping the Faith. And that's going to be the most insane double feature you ever did hear about. Fantastic. Love it. I think that's our episode. Excellent. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Joseph, what um, institution can the listeners find you and your work at? Uh, you can find me inquisiting things at uh, on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I'm also on Letterboxd doing a pretty decent job of uh, keeping up with, among other things, revisiting old TIFF movies that I watched. Uh, at uh, That is also found on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. And then I am also on Twitter at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also on Letterboxd under the same name. We'd like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So please paint a lovely portrait of us, but don't burn it in the town square. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye-bye. Take a bite of my bad girl. Tell me something that'll save me. I need a man on my alright. Tell me something that'll change me. I'm gonna love you with my hands, Dad. Show me your teeth. Tell me when. Show me your teeth. Open your eyes.